This week's episode deals with disturbing themes of child sexual assault. Parental discretion is advised. You're listening to part two of Unexplained, season six, episode 25, Once There Was a Way. It was 7.15 on the morning of Sunday, August 12th, 1984, when Don Martin received a call at his home on Fraser Street in southern Des Moines from the route manager of his son Eugene's paper round. The manager wanted to know if the 13-year-old Eugene was at home, but Don didn't understand. Eugene, or Gene as his family called him, wasn't due back from his route for another half hour or so. But that's just the thing, explained the manager. He wasn't on his route. His papers were still on the sidewalk, all stacked up, waiting to be taken away for delivery. Strangely, he added, Eugene's bag was next to it, with ten of the papers already tucked inside, but there was no sign of Eugene. Don felt his mouth go a little dry. As a Des Moines resident, he knew all too well about the story of the young, missing newspaper deliverer, Johnny Gosh. Doing his best to ignore the rising, sickening feeling in his stomach, he assured the manager that his son would be back soon to finish the job. But 30 minutes later, and Eugene's bag and stack of papers were still out on the sidewalk, while Eugene was nowhere to be found. Fraser Street, where Eugene lived with his father Don and stepmother Sue, was barely a 10-minute walk from the corner of Southwest 14th and Highview Drive, where his papers were located. There was just no way he would have disappeared without telling anyone, and if he had gone home for any reason, he would have showed up by then. Deep down, Don knew something terrible had happened. By midday, the Des Moines police were notified that yet another Des Moines Register paper carrier was missing, and in circumstances all too familiar for everybody's comfort. This time, however, in light of the Johnny Gosh case, the Des Moines police immediately sprang into action on the assumption that Eugene was not simply missing but had been the victim of a crime. Statements quickly gathered from Eugene's fellow carriers only served to exacerbate their worst fears. Like Johnny Gosh, Eugene had been seen talking to an unknown man shortly before he disappeared. The man was described as being somewhere between 30 to 40 years old, between 5 foot 9 and 6 feet tall, and being clean-shaven with a generally neat appearance. Eugene was said to have spoken to the man sometime around 5.20am when it was still dark. Some said the man appeared to be the owner of a green Chevrolet Malibu, others that he had put his arms on Eugene at one point, while some said that the two had conversed in a cordial manner, almost as though they knew each other.
For a city still reeling from the mystery of what happened to Johnny Gosh, it wasn't long before most people heard the news about Eugene Martin too. By Sunday afternoon, Des Moines police had been joined by over a hundred volunteers in their search for Eugene, while all emergency service personnel were instructed to look out for him too. Even officers who were otherwise engaged used any spare time between call-outs to aid in the search. Friends were contacted, and any favourite hangouts checked and double-checked, while every street in the surrounding area was searched over and over again, and so too was Denman Woods, Waterwork Park, and Grays Lake. But by the end of that first day, the search had yielded nothing. On Monday, a man came forward, claiming to have seen a young boy on the Sunday afternoon who looked just like Eugene, riding in the back of a car close to Southwest 14th and Indianola Avenue, not far from where Eugene was last seen, who looked to have been beaten around the face. But without any details of the car, the sighting was useless. Before long, one day of Eugene missing turned into two, and then three. The Friday after Eugene's disappearance was his 14th birthday. For Eugene's parents, Don and Janice, who lived on the other side of town, it was the loneliest of days. After another two weeks of looking, with police by then working alongside some of the FBI's finest, neither Eugene nor any substantial clue as to where he'd gone had been found. On August 28th, volunteers who'd continued looking for him every day, numbering in their hundreds at the weekend, were politely asked to stand down. Just as it was with Johnny Gosh, a fund had been set up offering money in exchange for information leading to Eugene's whereabouts, but also as it was for Johnny, Despite growing to almost $100,000 in size, no one was able to provide the relevant information. In October, a man contacted police to say he'd seen someone carrying a limp-looking body, possibly that of a teenage boy, under a bridge on Highway 2. The bridge runs from east to west about 40 miles south of Des Moines and is located about a mile away from a well-known fishing shack. However, the area was thoroughly searched and nothing was found. When self-described psychic Evelyn Quick later claimed she had a vision of Eugene's body near a body of water and some kind of shack, police returned to the bridge to search the area for a second time, but again they found no evidence that Eugene or the body of any other person had been dumped there. Now a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. It can be tough to train your brain to stay in problem-solving mode when faced with a challenge in life, but when you learn how to find your own solutions, there's no better feeling. A therapist can help you become a better problem-solver, making it easy to accomplish your goals, no matter how big or small. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional offline therapy and financial aid is available. BetterHelp. 
wants you to start living a happier life today. Just fill out a brief survey and get matched with a therapist today and you can switch therapists anytime if you so wish. When you want to be a better problem solver, therapy can get you there. Visit betterhelp.com unexplained10 today to get 10% off your first month. That's better, H-E-L-P.com slash unexplained10. For Johnny Gosh's parents, Noreen and John, who contacted the Martin family immediately after Eugene was declared missing to offer whatever support they could, it was another devastating blow. Despite all they'd done to alert local authorities to the danger of child abduction, it had seemingly happened all over again. That Eugene had disappeared under such similar circumstances, for Noreen at least, was further evidence too that a shadowy child abuse ring was actively snatching children from America's streets. Though not everyone was willing to agree, it was hard to ignore the growing sense among many Americans that there was something rotten at the core of their country that seemed to be getting worse by the day. In 1979, six-year-old Eaton Pats went missing as he walked to his school bus stop in Lower Manhattan. The boy was never seen again. Then in July 1981, six-year-old Adam Walsh went missing from a shopping mall in Hollywood, Florida. Adam's severed head was found in a drainage canal two weeks later. The rest of his body has never been located. With Johnny Gosh and then Eugene Martin to add to that list, a stranger danger panic began to take hold. People started to wonder if it was safe to let their children out at night at all. For then-President Ronald Reagan and his advocates, it was all the fault of a vulgar social liberalism that had been steadily creeping into American society. In a re-election campaign speech delivered in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, in late September 1984, President Reagan even name-checked both Johnny Gosh and Eugene Martin. Reagan promised to be tough on crime and to uphold the key American tenets of family, neighbourhood and good hard work, as if everyone from any political spectrum didn't already hold those dear. Some decried the crimes as marking an irreversible loss of innocence for the nation, while executive editor of the Des Moines Register, James Gannon, saw Johnny and Eugene's potential kidnapping as the inevitable consequence of a general softening on crime, which, according to him, was threatening to turn the safe and sane heartland of middle America into Detroit or Chicago. For Noreen Gosh, she was mostly just happy that the president had picked up on her son's case. Earlier in the year, thanks to the work of Adam Walsh's parents, and in part to the Gosh's tireless campaigning to keep Johnny's case in the news, in June 1984, the National Centre for Missing and Exploited Children was set up. Then in September, a campaign to have the profiles of missing children displayed on milk cartons was launched, 
Johnny Gosh and Eugene Martin were the first of what would become known as the missing milk carton kids. But by the end of that year, no further news of their whereabouts had come to light. It was late one night in 1985 when a woman called the Gosh family home with an incredible story to tell. The woman had been visiting a grocery store in Sioux City, Iowa, about a three-hour drive west of Des Moines, where she received a dollar bill in her change with something scrawled over it in pen. Looking closer, she nearly dropped her bag of groceries when she saw what it said. Written in capital letters were the words, I'm alive, and underneath that was the scribbled signature of Johnny Gosh. Noreen claimed to have had three handwriting experts analyse the note, with all three confirming it as a match for Johnny. It offered nothing in the way of clues to find the boy, but was enough of a sliver of hope for Noreen and John to hang on to. Then in July 1985, something even more incredible. While out publicising Johnny's case in Kansas City, Noreen was approached by a burly-looking man who introduced himself as Samuel Forbes Dakota. The man claimed to know exactly what had happened to her son and promised to write it all down in a letter for her in the next few weeks. Sure enough, on August 9th, the letter arrived at the Gosh family home. In it, Dakota claimed that for the past six years, He'd been a member of the Hells Angels motorcycle gang, who in that time had been tasked with keeping watch over 200 children that the gang had helped to kidnap for all manner of people. And one of those children was known to him as Johnny Gosh. Dakota even gave the names of several other people who'd been involved in the boys' kidnapping. But more than that, Johnny, he said, was alive and was being kept as a pet by a high-level drug dealer in Mexico City. And if Noreen and John paid him $111,000, he would personally go down there and rescue him. The letter also came with a warning that in no uncertain terms should the Goshes involve the police in the matter or else he would vanish and take his secret with him. Feeling they had little choice, the increasingly desperate Goshes agreed to wire the man $11,000 immediately and promised to pay another hundred if he managed to succeed in rescuing their son. A few days later, they received the devastating news from Dakota that his rescue effort had been unsuccessful. And then he disappeared. After finally informing the police about the situation, a few days after that, Dakota was tracked down to a motel in Ontario by the FBI. As it turned out, he wasn't a Hell's Angel at all, but a man named Robert Herman Meyer II from Saginaw in Michigan. After his arrest, Meyer pled guilty to two counts of wire fraud, 
and was sentenced to three years in prison. On August 17, 1985, Eugene Martin's family gathered together for what was the second birthday in his absence. As painful as it was, they even baked a cake for him, which they placed in the freezer, ready to thaw it out the moment he walked through the door. But the moment never comes. Much like the Gosh family, they too grew angry and frustrated at the police's inability to find even the faintest clue as to Eugene's whereabouts. The police could only reiterate that they were doing everything they could. Then in March the following year, improbably, it happened again. 13-year-old Mark Allen lived with his mother Nancy on Emma Avenue in southern Des Moines, barely a three-minute drive from where Eugene was last seen. In the evening of March 29, 1986, Nancy was making pizza for her two other children when Mark stepped out to meet up with some friends, asking her to save him some for when he got back. Nancy remembered waving him off, then watching him disappear past some bushes a little further down the road, and that was the last she ever saw of him. It wasn't until the following morning that Nancy realised her son had not come home, She thought he'd most likely gone to stay with his grandmother, who he was known to be close with, but she hadn't seen him. More worryingly, he never even made it to the friends he said he was going to see the night before. His father and mother-in-law, who lived in Connecticut, hadn't heard from him either. Unlike Eugene Martin, however, Mark Allen was seen as a problem child, who had a history of so-called behavioural difficulties, which likely stemmed from his unsettled upbringing, of which he had absolutely no control. Raised by his maternal grandmother from the age of seven months to four and a half, he was eventually allowed to move back with his mother in Des Moines, where he stayed until he was ten, before moving again to live with his father in Minneapolis. Then in January 1985, he moved back to Des Moines to live with his mother. For those reasons, despite Nancy's pleas to the contrary, many in the police took the view that her son had most likely just run away. For many others, however, the press included, the simple fact remained. Here was a third child from Des Moines, last seen only minutes away from Eugene Martin's last known whereabouts, who was now also missing. It was sometime in early 1988, almost six years since Johnny Gosh's disappearance, four since Eugene Martin, and 18 months after Mark Allen's, when Nebraska law enforcement officials were alerted to an audit conducted on the personal taxes of a man named Lawrence E. King. King, the chief executive of the Franklin Credit Union in Omaha, Nebraska, some 130 miles west of Des Moines, had an official annual salary of just over $16,000, 
something which seemed to conflict with his rather openly lavish lifestyle. Known for his flamboyant dress sense and adorning himself with expensive jewellery, King also owned a $70,000 Mercedes as well as a four-story house with 26 acres of land overlooking the Missouri River. He also thought nothing of spending $10,000 a month on his own private limousine, and in one particularly outlandish 13-month period, managed to spend $150,000 on flowers alone, a popular expense euphemism, in the music industry at least, for drugs, King was an active member of the Republican Party and a well-respected member of the local community who'd at one time been the business committee chairman of the National Black Republican Council. The self-made King, who preached a pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps philosophy, often made large donations to charitable causes and had been celebrated for his unparalleled ability to persuade numerous charities and non-profits to deposit money at his Franklin Credit Union, which served a largely low-income client base in North Omaha. In truth, however, it appeared that King was quite likely siphoning money from the union for himself. But just as police were preparing to investigate King, something else came to light. In June 1988, a social worker who worked at a psychiatric hospital in Omaha, made an astonishing accusation to the Nebraska Foster Care Review Board. He claimed that he had good reason to believe that a child prostitution ring was actively operating in Nebraska, and at the centre of it all was Lawrence E. King. In November 1988, FBI agents stormed the Franklin Community Building in Omaha and closed it down, and Lawrence King was arrested and accused of embezzling millions of dollars from the credit union. However, while King's arrest for potential corruption made headline news, the other accusation, perhaps due to its largely spurious nature and lack of evidence, remained a secret. That was until the following month, when during an executive board meeting of the state legislature in Lincoln, Nebraska, State Senator Ernie Chambers made the public announcement that King had also been accused of facilitating countless incidences of child abuse. Chambers went on to say that he believed the accusations to be just the tip of the iceberg, and that in time, Many other public figures would be outed for their involvement in it too. In response, the FBI were forced to reveal that they had also been informed of the accusation and were looking into it as part of their ongoing investigation into King's alleged fraudulent activities. While the Nebraska Attorney General revealed it was also aware of the accusation and had instructed the state police to investigate it, A state government committee was set up to carry out its own investigation into how the Franklin Credit Union had collapsed, headed by Republican State Senator Lauren Schmidt. However, with some in the state government 
Schmidt included, having appeared to have already made up their mind about the abuse allegations, the Franklin Committee, as it came to be known, also doubled up as a secondary investigation into those two. The committee soon came to loggerheads about how best to proceed, with Kirk Naylor, the lawyer, tasked with overseeing all legal implications, especially apprehensive about legitimising the abuse accusations. In the end, Naylor decided to stand down, after which the committee appointed a private investigator, Gary Caradori, to find the cold hard evidence to back up the accusations. Over the next few weeks, Caradori claimed to have uncovered 60 potential survivors of the abuse and had recorded over 21 hours of testimony from a handful of them. In late December, these tapes were handed over to the Nebraska Attorney General's Office, the FBI and the Douglas County Sheriff's Office, where Omaha is located. A teen solo hiker who was terrorised for days by unknown figures dressed in white, two cops who quit their job at a local theatre because of unexplained encounters with an alleged demon, an isolated forest in Canada where people keep turning up headless. These are just some of the strange, dark and mysterious stories you'll hear each week on the Mr. Borland podcast. In each episode, Mr. Borland shares real-life haunting accounts like the case of Haley Zager, who disappeared from a hiking trail for 51 hours when search and rescuers finally found her and asked how she survived. She said simply that a friend helped her. She described this friend as four years old with black hair and brown eyes. This friend was initially dismissed until they realised that a girl had gone missing in that exact spot 23 years earlier and was never found. She was four years old with black hair and brown eyes. Hey Prime members, listen to the Amazon Music exclusive podcast, Mr. Borland Podcast, Strange, Dark and Mysterious Stories. Download the app today. Former Nebraska State Senator John DeCamp was among the most vocal supporters of those willing to go on record to accuse King of his involvement in the alleged child prostitution ring. De Camp was adamant that the accusations were true and penned a letter to the Omaha World Herald newspaper listing the names of four other prominent and powerful men who'd been accused along with King of taking part in the abuse. It was, he believed, a conspiracy that went all the way to the highest echelons of American society. The letter was then mailed to 10,000 homes in eastern Nebraska by a candidate running for state office at the time. When the police investigation into the allegations were complete, a grand jury was arranged to take place in July to determine whether there was enough evidence to pursue a formal prosecution of King and the other men who'd been accused alongside him. That same month, Gary Caradori, the Franklin Committee's lead investigator, who'd compiled the 21 hours of testimony and had apparently tracked down 60 potential survivors of the alleged abuse, flew himself and his son to Chicago to watch a baseball game. On the return flight, 
Early in the morning of July 11th, 1989, Caradori's plane fell out of the sky and crashed four miles south of Ashton in north-central Illinois, killing him and his eight-year-old son. The plane was later judged to have mysteriously broken up in mid-flight. According to some, Caradori had not just travelled to Chicago for a baseball game, but also to rendezvous with a child pornographer called Rusty Nelson in order to collect incriminating photographs that purported to show numerous well-known individuals in compromising situations with young children. This claim, however, is entirely unproven. A few days later, the Douglas County Grand Jury found that there was absolutely no evidence that Lawrence King, or anyone else for that matter, had been involved in any ring of organised activity to sexually exploit minors, transport minors in interstate commerce for sexual purposes, or to traffic in controlled substances. The jury also concluded that John DeCamp had most likely written his accusatory letter for personal political gain and possible revenge for past actions alleged against him, and that all in all, the accusations were a carefully crafted hoax scripted by a person or people with considerable knowledge of the people and institutions of Omaha. The case seemed fairly open and shut when it was then revealed that two of the four witnesses who'd volunteered testimony to the Franklin Committee later recanted their statements, saying that they'd simply made up the allegations in the hope of making some money from it. The two other witnesses, Alicia Owens and Paul Bonazzi, who claimed they were survivors of the prostitution ring and had named specific individuals of being involved in it, maintained that it was all true. Both were found guilty of perjury and received hefty prison sentences for their involvement in the adjudged hoax. Despite the grand jury's ruling, it did little to diminish the ever-growing moral panic that seemed to have much of America in its grip. The all-too-convenient timing and suspicious nature of Gary Caradori's death, as some saw it, only served to fan the flames. The following day after the grand jury released its verdict, a poll conducted by local TV station KETV revealed that more than 90% of viewers disagreed with its findings. Many turned their ire on the media, the FBI and local law enforcement, accusing them all of not doing their jobs properly. The FBI said they were satisfied there was no substance to the allegations, while the Omaha police and state attorney general said their investigations into the rumours were thorough and failed to find any evidence to corroborate the accusations. The editor of the Omaha World Herald newspaper also defended its involvement, arguing that dedicating 700 stories to the case, with more than 7,000 hours clocked by journalists looking into it, was hardly a dereliction of duty. Their credibility was somewhat damaged, however, when one Omaha World Herald journalist 
was soon after arrested in an unrelated incident for abusing two children by fondling them. Though Lawrence E. King was not charged with perpetrating child abuse, he was eventually found guilty of embezzling almost $40 million stolen from the Franklin Credit Union and was sentenced to 15 years for the crime and keeping a keen eye on it all from their home in Des Moines, Iowa, were Noreen and John Gosh, still heartbroken and still desperately searching for their son. You've been listening to Unexplained Season 6, Episode 25, Once There Was A Way, Part 2 of 3. The third and final part will be released next Friday, November 18th. If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help support us, you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad-free episodes, just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplained pod to sign up. Unexplained the book and audiobook, featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained, including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast.